It's published on Fukai in a number of venues and also on Japanese esoteric Buddhism as well. And his talk tonight is called Transcendence of the Body in Fukai's Shingon Buddhism. Are you ready? Yes. Good. Thank you, Richard, for your nice introduction. Richard and I have been good friends since my early years at Stanford, back to the We've had Stanford Berkeley Buddha Studies graduate exchanges back then, sometimes lubricated with fine beverages. And that was the other reason I was referring to in our friendship. It wasn't just our conversation. Yes, it was friendship It's nice to be here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and launch into my talk because when it got printed out on the nice computer here, uh, the page length doubled. I think it's because the font increased, but the double length of the page scared me. So I'm going to launch into it. But let me just start off with a couple of comments first. Um, the paper I'm using here is a bit theological or philosophical. Richard prefers the term doctrinal or philosophical, but I actually like the term theological because I think many concepts in Buddhist thought, share interests, share overlapping realms of concern with concepts in theistic systems, whether Christian or Judaic or Islamic. And I think concepts like transcendence and imminence, which are often used to discuss concerns in Christian theology, are, to use a double negative, not irrelevant in Buddhist thought. And I think it's important for some of us to begin to think more carefully about how we can compare philosophical systems in great religious traditions which are on the one hand theistic and on the other hand non-theistic. And the title of this talk and my concern in the subject matter of this talk derives to a large degree from my studies of Christian theology over the past few years and my discussions with many Christian friends about their own And my interest in comparative theology are uh, growing rapidly. And uh, like some other scholars, you might know of a book, I forget the title, by edited by Jose Cabazon and um, who's the fellow from Crossing? Roger, Roger, um, my goodness, Roger, why am I forgetting your name? Anyway, a good Tibetan Buddhist scholar from Rock, from uh, Carlton University who are using the term theology to refer to Buddhist work on philosophy. And I think it's a good term to use. And I think actually people in Jodo Shin tradition might be more comfortable with it because the tradition seems a little bit more theistic. But in any case, with that preface, that preface uh, my title is a reference to theological concerns. So let me move on. Kukai distinguished Shingon from other Buddhist schools consistently throughout his career by designating his teachings and practices as deriving from the preaching of the Dharmakaya. Oh, and by the way, this is a glossary here for those of you who'd like to know the characters, and they're in chronological order, so I think it is certain phrases, like preaching of the Dharma body, uh, this kanji over here. And I might have skipped one or two, but I tried to keep them in as clear as order as possible. And for those of you who might not know who Kukai is, he's a Japanese Buddhist monk and scholar who lived from 774 to 835, at the beginning of the end of the Nara period, the beginning of the Heian period in Japanese history. He founded the Shingon school of Japanese Tantric Buddhism, and one of the most influential um, scholars and priests in the history of Japanese Buddhism. The earliness of his writings supposedly explicate this sense that the Dharmakaya, the supposedly transcendent body of the Buddha, actually preached, 
Well, it's just actually distinguishing the two teachings, exoteric and esoteric teachings, known in Japanese as the Ben Kenmitsu Nikyogon, which was likely written around 815. This was at a time when Sukai was preparing to establish a center for Shingon study at the mountain known as Koyasan. And when he seems to have ended his collaboration to promote esoteric Buddhism in Japan with the founder of the Japanese Tendai school, whose name was Saisho. They worked together for a while. The then came to Nikyodo, as an essay distinguishing esoteric and esoteric teachings. I will shorten the title and call it Nikyodo, which means the essay on two teachings. So I will refer to that as the Nikyodo. The Nikyodo marks the beginning of Kukai's championing of unique virtues of Shingon teachings and practices. And this is something he did throughout his life. While some scholars have considered Kukai's activities from this point on as contributing to the emergence of a sectarian posturing within the history of Japanese Buddhism, and they've considered Saito's posturing at the same time to be a very essential mark of a new development in Japanese Buddhism, I do not think that he had such intention. And I share this view with you, Gabi. I don't think Kukai was trying to create any sect. And I believe that his actions indicate that he was intent upon integrating Shingon studies into the existing structure of Buddhism in Japan, not trying to create a separate school. Still, his highlighting of the superior qualities of Shingon practices can be found at times antagonistic, as if he's trying to indicate something different that he left to set apart. Yet I think his rhetoric is best understood as a strategy for calling attention to what he considered the remarkable capacity of Shingon contract practices for realizing the sociological or the religious and spiritual aims of all the Buddhist schools. He clearly supported these Buddhist sociological aims and in short saw Shingon as a culmination of them. His text called the treatise on the ten stages of the mind of the secret mandala, Himitsu Mangara Juju Shingon, unites all Buddhist and non-Buddhist minds in the concept of the secret mandala of the Buddha, the universal matrix from which awakening can be born. My paper tonight will focus on Kukai's presentation in the Nikyodon of a rhetoric for distinguishing between Shingon and what he calls the exoteric or non-tantric schools of Buddhism. I will look in particular at how he employs the term vi, which is there in the text vi, which in Japanese can be read hanare, means to separate from, to be apart from, to be removed. It's a central term in his text, and I think he employs it in a variety of ways, and that's my focus here. How does he use this term be? Which could be rendered variously as separate, removed, transcendent. He uses this term creatively to designate both what he indicates to be a flaw in the metaphysics or the philosophy of the exoteric non-conscious Buddhist schools, and what he sees as unique and superior in Shingon. In other words, he uses it both to critique something in the non-conscious school and to emphasize what he sees as better in the conscious school. So the word has various levels of uh, employment. More on that in a moment. In brief, he characterizes the exoteric school as maintaining a problematic philosophical stance that dualistically posits a transcendent realm of ineffable ultimate reality. Okay? Some kind of ultimate reality that can't be spoken in language other than words that's transcendent and beyond. And he refers to the tendency of the exoteric schools to posit such a reality as dualistic and removed from our world. And he says they use the term re to talk about that as if it's separate and ultimate and absolute. He then characterizes Shingon teachings and practices rather ironically as actually being rooted in this very realm that the exoteric schools purportedly take to be utterly transcendent. 
So he critiques it, but then says that it's okay. They all kind of understand what they're talking about. We ourselves are in this higher realm, and since we know what we're talking about, we can't be criticized. He gets a little bit slippery with his posture, but more on that in a moment. One might say that Kukada's portrayed Chamberlain as taking its start where the other schools leave off, as having discovered a hidden source of transformative power in a realm that is dismissed by others as being beyond consideration. Theologically thus, he creates a distinction between transcendence and imminence. In his words, Chamberlain practice allows one to witness what the other schools consider to be utterly transcendent and beyond experience, and to be removed. And in his view, single practice makes what is removed actually available to us via ritual practices that the other schools do not have. The flaw in his eyes of the exoteric ontology or metaphysics of a transcendental realm is thus corrected in Kukai's language by an understanding of the ever-present nature of ultimate reality here as an imminent reality, not a transcendent reality. This understanding, however, when engendered via Shingon ritual practice, for Kukai reveals a new dimension of existence that can be understood as transcendent in a new life. In other words, he wants to portray somehow what is imminent as transcendent, and that's what I'm going to talk about in a moment. In a sense, what Kukai does via such rhetoric is to make the standard Mahayana move of locating nirvana within Sankara. Yet, within a particularly tantric or Vajrayana context. What I find surprising about Kukai's presentation is his attempt to characterize mainstream Mahayana schools of thought, such as Yogacara, Madhyamaka in India, and Gentai and Kuaian in China, as being metaphysically and ontologically challenged. He does claim that they're challenged. They're challenged by an unsophisticated dualism, in his view, that posits a separate transcendental realm. And it seems unfortunate, actually, I think, that Shingon traditional scholarship tends to inherit this rather uncritical critique. That they tend also, in contemporary Shingon scholarship, to see the non-Shingon schools as metaphysically challenged, as having unsophisticated philosophy. I will present below a synopsis of the passages Kukai calls to make his case, from which it will be clear, I hope, that a purpose reading will indeed support his view. In other words, he finds passages that seem to support the view that these schools have an unsophisticated, dualistic ontology. Yet, his citations are very carefully selected to portray only one side of the story. Any educated student of Mahayana literature, and I include myself in that category, I hope some of you are, could easily find passages from the same text that Kukai cites that would erase any appearance of a dualistic ontology, which posits an ultimate reality as existing separate from our world. One might rightly wonder why Kukai sets up his presentation in this manner with a very weak argument at its core. Perhaps it was constructed dramatically as a reminder of the potential for transcendental reification that is inherent in the Mahayana teachings of the two truths, ultimate truth and conventional truth. A reminder that recalls Nagarjuna's caution against the unskillful views of ultimate reality, the unskillful views of emptiness. Nagarjuna argues, don't grasp on emptiness as if it's an existing thing. Also, don't grasp on it as if it's a negation of all existing things. Emptiness is a very difficult option to grasp. It's like a poisonous snake. You have to grasp it carefully in just the right place, or it will bite you. Right? So there's a possibility in Mahayana thought, and I, I think that lots of Mahayana thought is constantly, in its philosophical subtleties, engaged in a kind of cautioning to avoid either nihilism or a kind of reification 
or duality. And I think Kukai's understanding of this. But even this supposition begs the question as to why Kukai would deem it necessary to call attention to the metaphysical shortcomings of reifying ultimate reality. Whatever reasons there might be for his strategy, it clearly as a strategy serves for him the rhetorical purpose of highlighting what he sees as the immanental orientation central to Shingon practice. That is, in his view, from the heart of reality, right here in the midst of our own body, our own speech, our own mind, emerges the preaching of the Dharma body, of the Dharma Kaya. That's his view. In order to highlight aspects of his rhetoric, and in particular his critiques of the supposedly transcendental perspectives of non-conscious schools, in the latter part of the paper, I will actually present some arguments from a modern Western philosopher who's no longer alive, but whose work I like very much, Suzanne Langland. I think language articulation of different kinds of symbolism or different kinds of language provides a helpful template for considering Kukai's own views on esoteric Buddhism. Her thoughts also serve as a bridge to a consideration of the application of the term mysticism for discussing Kukai's doctrine and tantric practice in general. Following one of Suzanne Langer's leads, I will suggest that from at least one philosophical perspective with which Kukai's rhetoric conforms, the term mysticism is inappropriate to discussion on tantric Buddhism. And actually, I think one of Kukai's critiques of this ontological dualism that he suggests the non-tantric schools are sloppily engaged in follows Langer's critique of mysticism. And I think her critique is very helpful. It was helpful for me as sort of teasing out certain patterns of Kukai's rhetoric. Okay, I'm going to turn to now the structure of Kukai's text on some levels, the then came into Nikhil, on the essay that distinguishes the two teachings, esoteric and esoteric. Here I offer a synopsis of how Kukai has embraced the theme that certain elements of exoteric Buddhist thought are misguided. I'm going to divide um, my survey here into briefly, uh, how many, maybe about four sections on different types of Buddhism that Kukai discusses. First is introduction. In his introduction, the two teachings of exoteric and esoteric are primarily distinguished on the basis of what Kukai calls the Buddha body that preaches them. That is, the Nirmanakaya and the Kambodakaya teach in ordinary language that is by necessity only an approximation of the highest truth, the word to teach the Upaya, or expedience. The Dharmakaya, the Dharma body, teaches the highest realization, what Kukai calls, and this is on your glossary there, the realm of inner realized wisdom, Naishoti and Shilkai. And it teaches this via the three secret practices, the Samnitsumon, of Mudra, Mantra, and Mandala, body, speech, and mind. According to Kukai, all of the exoteric schools agree that the highest truth cannot be communicated in language. This perspective of setting the highest truth apart ought to be understood in Kukai's views as referring only to the conditions of the causal stage of practice that is beings who are seeking enlightenment. But it should not be relevant to what Kukai calls the resultant stage of awakening itself. And here he borrows from various other traditions, especially the Hawaiian tradition, which makes the distinction between the stages of cause and the stages of result. And I have that passage that I just wrote there. Um, uh, referring only to the conditions of the causal state of practice, but not the resultant state of awakening itself. Kukai presents his central exegetical point that Shingon practice embodies the result that the other schools claim is ineffable. 
and that this realm is communicated via the practices of mudra, mantra, and mandala. This emphasis on the result resembles the Indian and Tibetan perspective that sees Vajrayana practice as unique because of its method as taking the result, that is Buddhahood, as its practice. I don't know if some of you heard of the sense system, Palayana, Pala, P-H-A-L-A, means truth or result, and that refers to the goal of Buddhahood. In the Tantra tradition, oftentimes they talk about how you don't start from the perspective of an unenlightened being, you imagine that you are already enlightened. You take the goal as your vehicle. And Kuka uses exactly the same kind of language that's very constant with later language in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. In fact, what we see, interestingly, in some of Kukai texts are some of the first emergence of rhetoric for distinguishing and defining what is unique to Tantric Buddhism that don't appear later in Indian and Tibetan thought for centuries. Not that Kukai was the first one to come up with this, but he comes up with streams of thought out of India, filtered through China, that don't really emerge in strong textual traditions until later. So we see, I think, signs of the early development of Tantric thought in India that didn't develop into textual products. The language of result versus cause is central to Kukai's argument, and he relies in part for his rhetoric, as I mentioned before, on certain formulations from Chinese Huayan thinkers. And we'll see that below in a section on Huayan thought. Just after Kukai's introduction in the Nikiro, he has the passage from the text, which is on the glossary, called the Shur Moho Yanglun. It's a commentary on the awakening of faith, the famous text that's uh, either Indian or Chinese, <laughs> likely Chinese, but interestingly, even though the Chinese may have come up with the text, they also came up with a commentary on it that they attribute to Nagarjuna. Yeah. It was a central text, it's a central text in Kuhai's understanding of Shingon Buddhism. In this section he cites, in the section that he cites, he stresses the inability, rather the text stresses the inability of language to express the state of enlightenment. And the text states repeatedly in a series of five questions and answers, the various phrasings represent, as it says in glossary here, the state of ignorance and not the state of enlightenment. The text implies that the state of enlightenment can somehow be represented because all these other statements do not express it. At one point, the text summarizes in a manner entirely supportive of Kukai's assessment of the exoteric non-conscious view, very refined and apophatic or negative renderings of Mahayana insights as indicating that the highest truth is, quote, absolutely removed and transcendent, absolutely removed and transcendent. And on your text here he uses the term Japanese Zetsuri, Um There are different renderings in the Shomoyama. Sometimes it says Zetsuri, and another retention of the text says Zetsuri, Zetsuri. So it could be absolutely, absolutely removed, removed, or absolutely removed, absolutely removed. Truth I love to quote those passages because he suggests that they indicate a dualistic ontology, as I'll discuss it in later on, I don't think they really do, but he cleverly cites passages to his own, to support his own people. <coughs> I want to discuss now how he cites some passages from, very briefly, uh, four Buddhist schools. First the Huayan, then the Tenthai, then the Madhyam, the Yogacara, and then the Madhyam. The Huayan text. Who cites Kukai's uh, discussion of the Huayan school establishes an important conceptual framework for him that can be encapsulated by the phrase, the realm of results cannot be explained in Japanese Kabun Kukai system. He portrays the view of ultimate truth in the Huayan school by citing two passages from Kwasang, the great Huayan master, his treatise on the five teachings of Wu Jiaxiang. Kukai's first citation of the treatise on the five teachings is from the beginning of the work, a section in which Kwasang defines the two aspects of the separate teaching in the Huayan tradition, the term that he uses to distinguish the virtues of Huayan doctrine. 
these two aspects of the resultant realm that is the ocean of essence and the causal realm of dependent origination. Through this distinction, Fatsan divides the separate teaching of the one vehicle, what in Japanese is known as the Ichijo Ekyo, as I've done there on the glossary, separate teaching of the one vehicle, into realms of result and cause. And the former, that is the result realm, according to Huayan, is inexplicable to consciousness. It's not suitable for teaching, and it's the sole realm of the ten Buddhas. While the former, that is the causal realm, is explicable, and it's the realm of Samantabhadra, that is the Bodhisattva, practicing to be a Buddha, not the Buddha, etc., etc. So this, this notion of the causal realm heading to Buddhahood and the Buddha realm, one which you can talk about and the other which you can't, is very central to Hawaiian discussion of Buddhist theory and practice, and Kukai Bharamana is from it strongly. He next in his Hawaiian section tries to package explaining the doctrine of what's called the dependent origination of the Dharma doctrine in Japanese Hokkai and Yi, which once again Fazan breaks down as two aspects, that which illuminates the realization of the ultimate realm of fruition, and that which teaches the realm of cause in accordance with conditions, and again, the former realm is declared to be the sole realm of the ten Buddhas, unsuitable for teaching and having inexplicable features. Kukai really likes to borrow on this final discussion of the inexplicable realm and the explicable realm. Both passages cited from this treatise include Fatsang's paraphrase of the Chinese translation of the treatise on the ten stages, that is the Dasabhumika Sastra, which is Bhaktivedanta's commentary on the Dasabhumika Sutra, one part of the Sutra. This passage is to the effect that the realm of cause or practice of reading the Buddhahood can be explained, but the realm of creation cannot be explained. Fatsabhumika states that clearly in the Hawaiian text, drawing from that. Fazan employs this paraphrase as a textual support for his emphasis on the discontinuity between these realms of cause and fruition. Following, as it does, this citation, Kukai's own quoting from the Shur Mohoyenlun, the selection from Fazan in particular, his pithy summation of the treatise on the Ten Stages, can be seen as establishing for Kukai's purposes a clear model for understanding the distinction between exoteric and esoteric teaching. Kukai's commentary concluding the passage is quoted from Fazan, says, The passages from the treatise on the ten stages and the treatise on the five teachings to the effect that the ocean of essence is inexplicable are in complete agreement with the passages from the Gardenist, Shurmohyanlun. So this key proof text of Kukai, the Shurmohyanlun, is now backed up by Bhaktivandu and Fazan. And the Shermohayanam says that the complete and perfect ocean of essence cannot be explained. This sense, in Kukai's words, that the stage of cause alone can be taught is the pretense of the exoteric non-tantric teachings. The ineffable, and this is on your um, glossary here, the ineffable resultant nature itself, Kukai says, is the core of the exoteric or tantric tradition. Here we see Kukai's equation of Fasan's ineffable realm of fruition with that of Shermohyanlun's ineffable non-dual Mahayana Dharma. The parallel is emphasized by Kukai's choice of the word ocean from the language of each text. This choice might be related to the common characterization in the Shingon tradition of the marvelous world of the deities of the Shingon mandala to be what they call an ocean-like assembly of deities. This ocean-like world of the mandala would correspond precisely, in Kukai's vision, to the inexplicable resultant realm that is the ocean of essence referred to by Fafan. The difference is that for Kukai, this realm is far from being unsuitable for teaching, or inexplicable. 
the place of the Dequanian text as the first of the various esoteric texts that Kukai cites, effectively establishes the terminological topography of explicable and inexplicable causal and resultants that's key to Kukai's project here. And of course, inexplicable here ought to be read as virtually synonymous with removed or transcendent because it's beyond language. Next, Kukai cites uh, or Kentai text, and I'll just give you a couple quotations here. He relies here mainly on a Jury, who's the great master of the Kentai tradition from the 6th century. Jury's discussion of the three truths, that is, he takes the argument of two truths and adds the third one. For Jury, the three truths are empty, provisional, and middle. In his uh, great calming and contemplation, the Moho Jirgon. The section begins with Jury's words that, quote, the principle of these three truths is inconceivable. They have no fixed nature and they are truly inexplicable. Jury then states that ten of accounts of these three truths could nonetheless be given by describing them from three different perspectives, the last and most profound of which is, in his words, an explanation in accordance with wisdom. Jury asserts that this level of understanding can, quote, only be found between a Buddha and a Buddha, which is a quotation from the Lotus Sutra. There's a famous passage there, only between a Buddha and a Buddha. And this is, in Kukai's views, a typical exoteric understanding that only Buddhists can practice where the rest of us can't even come close. Here, and this passage I have in the glossary, can only be found in a Buddha or a Buddha. Here, the path of words is cut off and the activities of mind are put to rest. This is classic Mahayana At the highest level, words can't express it, the mind can't reach it, only Buddhists can fathom it. For Kukai, this is the core of the exoteric dualistic, mistaken view. Kukai concludes that while the very same apokai or negative stance is shaped to all the exoteric schools, again, from the perspective of Shingon, such a negational perspective is, in Kukai's words and from the glossary, an introductory teaching for entering the past. It is not the secret interior. Okay, something from the yoga context, the Hakan tradition. Here Kukai cites the writings of the Chinese master Zuryan, who is a great master in Japanese uh Daichi, also known as Qi or Qi. He is a great master of the Koso tradition, the Pashan tradition in China. From his grove of doctrines from the Mahayana Garden of Dharma, Daijo Oen Isho. Suren divides the two truths central to Mahayana thought into four kinds of ultimate truth and two kinds of conventional truth. It gets very elaborate, but I'm going to shorten it here. Kukai's treatment focuses on the fourth and the highest kind of ultimate truth, which Juren calls the truth of the supreme meaning of the supreme meaning, in Japanese, shogi shogi-kai. Regarding the truth, Juren says, its substance is marvelous, it's apart from words. Here, truth is revealed by abandoning all attempts at signification. Kukai's comment on Juren's text refers to the statement that the truth is marvelous and apart from words, and further corroboration that, in Kukai's words, such claims about absolute transcendence are the territory of the exoteric school. And that's on the passage there. Kukai adds the qualified agreement that any kind of language employed by a person at the causal stage cannot reach the highest reality. And he alludes to the unique perspective again of Shingon, which holds that and you have to find your glossary, it is only the self-nature Dharma body by means of words of truth that accord with their object that can explicate this absolutely transcendent realm. 
So I'm just giving you these passages to indicate what I said before, how Kukai sets up the strategy. They say this realm is removed. Not only are they ontologically flawed, but in fact they don't even know that it is possible to speak from that realm because that realm is right here. And Tim won't have to just show it to you. So it's kind of a simplistic rhetoric, but for him it's very significant. And we'll get into both its simplicity and the idea of the flaws and its uh, significance. The interesting term here, um, Yogi. Which is on your passage. I'm calling it now um, to accord with its object. You could say with follows or accord. This actually can mean meaning, but in this sense actually the translation of the sense of Tuska, which means as it is sometimes it's true, it's ultimate and conventional, but actually in sense I'm sorry, Paramanasasana, truth of the supreme object, object or aim. And I'm thinking here is object. Words Kutai says which can accord with or match or follow their object. More than the room. The interesting term here, Nyogi, which I translate as in accord with its object, comes from the Shirmohyanlan passage. Kukai cites a later passage from the same text that delineates five different kinds of language, four of which cannot express the truth, but the fifth, words which accord with their object, and he uses them this plus one. Words which can accord with their object. Basically, what it means is words which can express reality. All the other traditions say words can express reality, but Kukai takes the Shimon Yenman passage which says there are five kinds of words, words which cannot express reality, but one kind, Nyogiko, the words which can express the truth. And he also, as it says in your text there, words which accord with their object and words which can grasp the truth. They can grasp the truth. This Shirmohan Lun passage forms a crucial part of Kukai's argument that there indeed is a kind of language that can convey the highest realization. It is perhaps the most essential proof text for the theory of the Dharma body teaching. Something from the, the Madhyamaka tradition of Sangha. This fourth and final section in Kukai's first half of the text is the longest with many citations, only a few of which will occupy us here. Kukai cites in this section two separate passages from the Dajidurum, which is a commentary on the perfection of wisdom sutra attributed to Nagarjuna, but probably a Chinese authorship. Both passages which state that all the negations of conceptual proliferation encountered in the apophatic or negative literature are merely, quote, initial teachings that assist one on the Buddhist path. So here Kukai gets this classic standard text of Buddhist doctrine which says, Negational language is only an initial entry to the past. So all the language that says you can't express ultimate truth is only preliminary or provisional. Kuk has very carefully select passages that will support his view. Kuk tried to the conclusion of the Madhyamaka section after citing a long passage from, of all people, Baba Vizeta, a great commentary on the garden, this uh, Mula Madhyamaka Khadi, that's very interesting. Has important passages from Baba Vijayaka, who is hardly ever studied in China or Japan or Kukai science, key passages there. Which, by the way, it turns out from the works of uh, Malcolm David Echo and his works from Baba Vijayaka, according to Echo, are in his mind some key key passages in all of Baba Vijayaka's works. Those are the passages Kukai science. I think Kukai was tuned into some stuff in a very different way. And I'm, I'm working on exactly how he got 
feed into that stuff. You know, ignore it if you can. The road is involved in this part. In any case, um, Kukai begins his conclusion of the Magadha section by asserting that the very passage that he cites well represents the fundamental stance of all the esoteric schools, which he summarizes as following. Magyamaka and the others think as the final doctrine, the cessation of all conceptual proliferation, quiescence, and the absolute separateness of ultimate reality. Kukai adds that the dualistic and apathetic perspective promotes a teaching, and this is on the blockchain, a teaching that rejects sentiency. It is not an approach that reveals the virtue. It's a negative approach, not a positive approach. The language here of an approach that does not, uh, it's not an approach that reveals the virtues, it is redolent of, or reminiscent of, Sakatabhadva, Nyorazo, kind of thought that comes out of India and China, and Kukai clearly making an, uh, a, a vote in favor of that kind of language, but that means it follows here. He sums up, summarizes the Madhyamaka section with the passage again from the Shermohayenran, which of course he claims to have been written by Nagarjuna, so it fits nicely in the Madhyamaka section. The passage mentioned above that asserts that there does exist a kind of language that can convey ultimate reality. The same passage also states that in addition to words that can accord with their objects or the no ego, there is also among ten kinds of mind, one kind of mind which can alone grasp the truth. And you have this on your passage as well. There are nine kinds of mind that can't grasp the truth, but one alone that can. Kukai then ends the first fascicle, or half of the Nkirum, which is primarily devoted to establishing this misplaced dualism of the non-conscious school, by quoting the treatise on the Bodhi mind, the Bodhi Kingdom, which of course is also attributed to the Gantana in this tradition, quoting it to the effect that it is only in the teachings of mantra that the method of attaining Buddhahood in this lifetime is revealed. And then it is in particular in the method of samadhi, and yet esoteric teachings, that you find uniquely efficacious practices. This passage uses the term samadhi three times, as does Kukai's brief glosses on the passage that concludes the first article. He turns that this term samadhi five times in the final section suggests its importance for foreshadowing the gist of Kukai's second article, which illustrates through abundant citations of key tantric texts that the single method of three secret practices of body, speech, and mind is itself the vehicle for realizing the preaching of the Dharmakaya and for planting yourself in the heart of that transcendent realm that everyone now thinks is so distant. Kukai's final gloss on the Shermohyanman passage says, quote, the meaning of the expressions such as the separation and non-separation as Yi and Fuji of words and thoughts is clearly explained in this treatise. Scholars of the esoteric teachings should familiarize themselves with it in order to dispel their confusion. Although Kukai does not state this explicitly, it seems to me that he concludes the first gospel with the implication that, while the esoteric practices of Shingon can reveal the power of certain words and thoughts to express ultimate reality directly, it is primarily through the vehicle of the body that these teachings manifest their transformative power. It's interesting, his critique of the exoteric school repeats again and again the language that words can't get it, mind can't get it. Words can't get it, mind can't get it. Kukai never says anywhere, but it's implied in his rhetoric here, well, what does it talk about human beings on three levels, right? Body, speech, and mind. All the texts say words can't get it, mind can't get it. So what about body? This is an implied emphasis for him that I think through the shameful practices is in our bodies. That we get it. 
His rhetoric seems intent upon highlighting a purported exoteric obsession with the transcendent character of ultimate reality in terms of words and thoughts, for speech and mind in a standard trilogy. Hence the logic of the treatment, citations of the phrase, the path of words is cut off, the place of thought are eradicated. A classic passage you find in many Mahayana texts. Thus, I think that one way he wants to depict single practice as separate and unique is in his capacity to occupy that very realm of seen as so distant in the dualistic view via its reintegration of one sense of body. I'll elaborate on this series, this theme of embodiment in my concluding comments. The second practical, which I will not discuss at length here, just to give you an indication of it, the Nikyogon has two practicals. The first one, which is concerned with critiquing what he sees as flawed in non-tantric schools. The second one draws from many passages of tantric texts to illustrate what kind of practice they have available for us. But I think actually his Nikyogon is really kind of a tease for people in Nala in his day. Um, he cited very juicy passages that are really hard to understand. And he glosses them in very brief and suggestive ways. I think he was trying to attract you're interested in these passages? You like this stuff? I know you can't read it on your own. Talk to me and I'll show you. And that's what I think the text was serving for him politically and socially. It was, it was a way of trying to bring people in our Indian tradition. And the passages are so carefully chosen, so skillfully glossed, to give a slight indication of what kinds of infinite realms of vast and profound meaning can be gained from a whole study of these texts within that. Kuka yeah. <laughs> promoted himself quite a lot. And I don't wish to critique him for that. I think he felt he really had something to offer. And if people would study with him, they could really be transformed in, in important ways. Whether he's right or not, I don't know. But I think he believed that. He believed he had something to offer people who wanted to lure them into him. And he tried to accept in very skillful ways. And he was one of the best writers of Chinese in all of Japan at that day. And many Chinese authors have said his Chinese was better than many people in China in the day. You know? So in any case, that's some, I think that's some of his strategies going on. The very text that he cites, such as uh, the, um, the Dainichi Kyo, the Mahabharata Sutra, and the Kongo Chokyo, etc., etc., the Bhajashakar Sutra, um, use highly symbolic language, the comprehension of which requires exegesis. I shall intersect the passage that I have written here is what I just said to you as an assignment called Pat. And he tried to offer uh, a lure by glossing difficult passages. Uh, the second passage, however, also includes two interesting passages from mainstream exoteric non-tantric texts as well. Again, from the Vajidulu, one of them, and also from the Chinese translation of the Lankavakara Sutra. And both of these texts have passages that state in absolutely clear terms that the Dharmakaya teaches. How Kuka looks through this hundred, hundred classical texts and finds these passages without, you know, computer search engines. I don't know, but he was a master at finding passages to support his point of view. Oh, you non-tantric single people say the Dharmakaya has a priest? The Dharmakaya says in Classical 42, page 3, line 14, there it does. I think right. In the Lakavakar Sutra, of its four translations, one translation in Chinese has a passage that says it. It wasn't a translation that was well circulated, but Kuka found the passage. He was he had antennas for this stuff. He must have read widely and seen to find these statements. He includes these passages with the clear intent of illustrating how the tendency to reify the separateness of ultimate reality can lead to exegetical blindness or dogmatism. A dogmatism that denies the existence of any affirmation otherwise present in Buddhist literature. 
So one of his rhetoric in many of his writings is that the non-conscious people are limited by a certain adherence to doctrinal senses. They only pay attention to what the master says and the sectarian and limited in their views and they need to broaden themselves and read more widely. Like him. How broad he was, I don't know. He was well read. There's no doubt. He repeatedly glossed this passage decided in the second classical with a statement to the effect that the realm of, quote, inner realized wisdom of the Dharma body, expressed by the three secret practices of Muslim Mantra and Mangala, is itself the realm referred to as absolutely apart by the exercise. Okay. I'm going to shift now to the section that I mentioned, and I might try to cut it short because this a bit longer than I thought, so I'm not sure how skillfully I'll be able to cut it short, so bear with me as I proceed. This is a middle section of my paper where I'm going to borrow some of the ideas from the philosopher Suzanne Langer in her marvelous book called Philosophy in a New Key, which she wrote in the late 1950s. She was a student of Ernest Catherine, who was a philosopher of symbolism, and I think her work um, is highly understudied <laughs> in the West. There's some remarkable things to say about symbolism and language. In order to bring another angle to the analysis of the rhetoric of transcendence, in the Shingon tradition, I would like to reflect a little on some ideas of Suzanne K. Langer in her book called Philosophy in the Key. Regarding mysticism and what she calls discursive versus presentational symbolism. She talks about two kinds of symbolism, discursive and presentational. I think her ideas provide a useful lens for considering two kinds of critiques of aspects of exoteric Buddhist thought. One of Langer's central aims in her book is to argue in favor of recognizing that the discursive forms of symbolism found in spoken and written language are not the only forms of symbolism. That is, by symbolism she means understanding or rationality that you mind have access to for knowledge. Discursive symbolism of language is not the only kind of symbolism. She wants to argue. One of the bones she kicks with the epistemologists of her day, that is, philosophers concerned with theories of knowledge of her day, concerns what she sees as their narrow definitions of the bounds of human reason, which, in her estimate, they hold to be equal to the limits of human language. But words, only that which can be expressed in words is rational. Everything else is irrational. And she argues, no, there are kinds of symbolism and knowledge that we ought to consider rational, but that aren't within the bounds of discursive symbolism. She calls these presentational symbolism. And she's trying to expand the understanding of what is rational and what keeps the human mind capable of understanding. She declares that her general theory of multiple levels of symbolization is broader and more useful because, quote, it distinguishes between two symbolic modes rather than restricting intelligence to discursive forms alone and relegating all other conceptions to some irrational realm of feeling and instinct. She claims thus that her representation, quote, has the great advantage of assimilating all mental activity to reason. She takes a particular bias of rational philosophy and tries to it. She adds that her approach may serve to avoid some of the pitfalls associated with mystical claims about ineffable experiences. And she says, every serious epistemology that has regarded mental life as greater than discursive reason and has made concessions to some kind of insight or intuition has just so far capitulated to unreason, to mysticism, and to irrationalism. And has postulated some inmost soul of pure feeling in direct contact with a reality that is unsymbolized, 
unfocused and incommunicable. End quote. In a passage where Langer contrasts the discursive symbolism of language to what she calls presentational symbolism, by which she refers to things like art and music. Music is symbolic, and what she wants to argue is that the things that music and art can convey to us are within the realms of what we ought to consider human reasoning. But there was a broad non-understanding of human reasoning. Quote, she says, in, I'm sorry, in a section of contrast to spiritual and presentational symbolism, she puts forth some questions about sense perception. She says, the symbolic materials given to our senses belong to the presentational order. May not the order of perceptual forms be a possible principle for symbolization? May not a non-discursive type of symbolism be perfectly rational, but simply not conceived through language? A product of that presentational symbolism which the mind reads in a flash, and which preserves, and which the mind preserves in a disposition or an attitude? A little bit more here. In her critique of refusal to admit non-discursive symbolism as a dimension of human rationality, Langer writes that the philosophers who are bound by this view, she says, nothing that is not language in the sense of their technical definition can possess the character of symbolic expressiveness. Consequently, nothing that can be, nothing that cannot be projected in discursive form is acceptable to the human mind at all in their vision. The knowable is a clearly defined field, and outside this domain is the inexpressible realm of feeling. A philosopher who looks in that direction of the inexpressible realm of feeling is or should be then, in a mystic. From the ineffable fear, nothing but nonsense can be conveyed. She says, I will go with the logisticians and deliver with as far as they like, but I promise to go no further. For there is, in Taoist, she says, an unexplored possibility of genuine semantics beyond the limits of discursive language. So she's really trying to stand some things here. I have a couple more quotes, but I'll pass them, but let me give a little passage here from of my own. Langer went on in her scholarship to develop theories of art, and she has a very well-known book called Feeling and Form, and she's a great philosopher of art. In philosophy of new key, she provides a glimpse of the foundation of these theories when she considers the realm of human sensory experience as an example of how meaning can be acquired in a presentational manner. And I will give you a brief example of something she discusses about the act of seeing as a sensory way of knowledge. Um, let me quickly gloss in this passage. She says, visual forms are not discursive. They do not present their constituents successively as words do in sentences. Visual forms, she says, present their contents simultaneously so that the relations determining a visual structure are grasped in one act of vision. She moves on and on to discuss this. From one familiar with Kukai's writings, this last section would raise to mind a passage from his first text that he wrote after he came back to China. It was his catalog of imported items that he submitted to the court to try to gain permission to submit texts and be recognized by the court. It's called the Shodai Mokuloku. In that text, Kukai writes in a way reminiscent of Langer 1200 years later, the Dharma is originally without words and yet it cannot be expressed apart from words. Suchness is beyond form, and yet it is attending to form, it is by attending to form that suchness is realized. The esoteric concrete teachings are very profound and it is difficult to convey them in writing. Thus they are provisionally revealed to the unenlightened via painting. 
The myriad forms of sacred deportment and the myriad gestures have the origin in deep compassion. In other words, that's the thought comes from, the way to express the non-discursive manner. With a single look at them, one may realize Buddhahood. This phrase is like straight from language thing in terms of she talks about how at a single glass glance you can grasp faith. It's very different from language. The meanings of the sutras and commentaries are secretly and intricately depicted in the images. The heart of the esoteric teaching are verily contained therein. And he moves on and all that. Language words grasped in one act of vision and her earlier phrase, presentational symbolism which the mind reads in a flash, are strikingly similar to Kukai's expression with a single look. And that hints that Kukai's entire critique of the limitations of what he calls exoteric Buddhist perspective can be nicely summed up in language words, quote, there is an unexplored possibility of genuine semantic beyond the limits of discursive language. I would like you to recall Lander's claim that the view that there exists no such semantic or order of meaning beyond discursive language amounts to an attitude of mysticism. A mysticism based, according to her understanding of her contemporary philosophers, a mysticism based on a limited and, this is my language, not hers, transcendentally dualist epistemology that relegates all knowledge to discursive, discursive forms. Alone. I think she's talking about a kind of transcendental dualism. And people are saying, well, there's another realm out there, if you can't get it through words, you can only get it through intuition, and those are mystics. Well, she, she wants to downplay that side. Because she thinks the claim that only mystics can get this realm that can't be gotten by language is based on a limited understanding of symbolic forms. There are other kinds of language besides discursive. There are presentational forms, such as that represented by art and music. And they convey types of significant human meaning that we also consider rational. And therefore, you don't have to be a mystic to enter those realms that are non-discursive. You simply have to have a broader understanding of what is reasoning and what is symbolism. I, I think her template is really quite powerful and beautiful, and it can help me to see things in Kukai and to repeat. Well, her, defined, her definition of mysticism may clearly not be the only possible avenue for delimiting this term. The wedge that she places between reason and feeling is carefully enough placed to present her critique clearly. Using language thoughts heuristically, it would appear that such a criterion for defining mysticism would render Kukai's perspective a staunchly anti-mystical one. In other words, I think they share a similar agenda. And barring this agenda, I would say that the word mysticism is a misnomer for Kukai's approach. In many ways, I think he's trying to critique a certain approach in exoteric Buddhism that is similar to what Langer is trying to critique. Right? She wants to do away with this notion of mysticism, uh, uh, some ontologically do with other realms. And so I think there's some similarities here. Now, I don't want to say, therefore, that you can't claim that Kukai tradition is mystical. It would depend on your definition of mysticism. But based on this definition that Lando uses, I think you could argue that Kukai is trying to do something similar with his rhetoric and philosophy. And in that sense, according to her definition, he's anti-mystical. And I, I think that's an interesting perspective. I'm not on that. I think also, in fact, that this is a helpful way to understand the thrust of Kukai's critique of any view that posits an absolutely removed realm. I think Kukai shares to a remarkable degree something of language attitude towards forms of reason, and to repeat that his critique of purported exoteric perspectives aims to correct the potential within them for such a transcendentally dualist epistemology. Let me make a summary of my key points and move to conclusion. 
I have indicated only briefly what I think might be some reason for Kukai's rhetorical strategy in the Nikhilgon, the treatise on the teachings. Here I want to repeat a few of my points made above to remind you of what my key points are, and then I'll make some conclusions. First, as I indicated, I think that the claim that the exoteric, non-conscious, mainstream Mahayana school reify ultimate reality by calling it ineffable and transcendent is a specious claim at the best. It's not a very good philosophical argument or critique for Kukai to make. Kukai zeroes in on language that might appear to indicate such a perspective, while entirely and intentionally neglecting to portray the contrary perspective so apparent in all Mahayana literature of non-dualism. Okay? And any careful reader of Mahayana traditions knows that non-dualism is a central doctrine. So how he can take a few passages to talk about how ultimate reality is beyond words of mind and mind and portray that as a dualistic perspective, it, it's almost incomprehensible. I, I doubt that anyone would have taken this argument seriously as a critique of Mahayana philosophy, but it serves as a kind of strategy for setting up something that he wants to do. It's kind of a, a strong doctrine. Right? And I think it is possible, of course, within the Mahayana tradition, in spite of all of the non-dualistic talk, for some people to remain dualist. Why are Mahayana texts repeating the rhetoric of non-dualism so often? Because there's a tendency for Buddhists to become Buddhists, to think that emptiness is something other than this world, to think that nirvana is apart from this world. And because that tendency emotionally and psychologically and epistemologically is so strong within human beings, the Mahayana continue to emphasize it from the garden on. So it makes sense for someone like Sukhai to also emphasize it, because there may be always a danger that someone will become a dualist, and that's almost as bad as being any other. So, in other words, there may be some merit to the reasons why you want to make a statement, but his critique of Mahayana as being naively dualistic is clearly misplaced. Kukai, nonetheless, uses such a depiction to highlight the unusual, bordering on the unorthodox character of his doctrine that the Dharmakaya preaches. That the Dharmakaya preaches is a doctrine that says that ultimate realm or absolute realm that's out there is actually right here. So it's an imminental view as opposed to a transcendental one. So he critiques the transcendental dualism in favor of an imminent, imminental position. Such a highlighting of Kukai works like this. While on the one hand critiquing the supported naive, supported naive dualism in the of the separate realm, he then claims on the other hand that single practices derive from the very otherness so mistakenly perceived in the so-called exoteric metaphysics. In other words, the conclusion of his rhetoric is that by virtue of rejecting the naive dualism in favor of a more sophisticated non-dual ontology in line with proper Mahayana metaphysics, and by acknowledging the broad view of the Dharmakaya that includes its capacity for preaching, Shingon practice is set apart from the exoteric teaching. Thus, I think the irony of his various uses of the term apart or read is very apparent here. The other traditions claim there's this separate realm and they use read or hanareteru that is separate or apart and then to talk about it. But what is what makes Shingon unique is that they see that that realm is not a part, it's right here, and they have access to the Dhammai preaching, and this makes Shingon be. In a sense, our immanental understanding makes us transcendent. And that's part of his sort of political strategy, his rhetorical strategy. And so he's got different ways of using this term. 
as well. Kukai and Pfizer showed that the exoteric teachings concentrate their apathetic or negative claims in assertions of the limitations of ordinary speech and thought. Word can't get it, mind can't get it. Hongo, Dodan, Shingyo, Shomets, the classic phrase on your passage in many minor texts. By ending the first fascicle with multiple references to the unique samadhi practices in Shingon and of the capacity for catalyzing the realization of Buddhahood in this very body, or Shokushin Jyotsu, Kukai seems to point to the body as the vehicle for Shingon practice. Of course, they use all three, the mudra, mantra, mandala, body, speech, and mind, all three. But I think his emphasis on body here. In spite of his citation of the Sher Mohoyanuan passages, the court of the view that special forms of speech, five kinds of speech, four which can't touch, two is one which can, ten kinds of thought or mind, nine which can't touch reality, one which can. And in spite of the obvious equality suggested in the Shingon trilogy of the three passages by speech and mind, I think that Kukai's theology in the Nikiron implicitly, not explicitly, prioritizes the body over and above the other two secrets. Moreover, the body is explicitly emphasized in many of his other works, such as the meaning of the realization of Buddhahood in this very body, Fukushin Jogutsugi, and the meaning of voice, letter, and reality, or Shoji, Jisogi, and others. I could talk a lot more about that, but I will maybe question later. Okay, my final conclusion here. One. One, please. Although, as I said before, I think Kukai's critique of mainstream Mahayana thought is off-target. Insofar as the textual tradition goes, I think it's very possible that Kukai saw a need for making this argument regarding reification and non-duality, just as so many Mahayanas have. I make this speculation because he was too astute a student of Mahayana literature to actually believe that his portrayal did justice to the textual tradition. He couldn't possibly believe that he had the Mahayana's Kenshai, Huayan, Madhyamaka, and Yogacara tradition slammed by his little dualistic critique. Thus, I guess that he might have perceived an inadequacy in understanding among some of his colleagues studying Buddhism in Nara Japan. Speculation. If the classical tradition of the continent could stretch repeatedly the importance of remembering the truth of non-duality, it's certainly not inappropriate for Kukai to do this. I think that Kuzai's arguments about the preaching of the Dharma body are part of an effort of his to seriously engage old conversations about the theories of the Buddha body. I told you I would mention this briefly later, and I will mention it briefly now. And it's actually a central part of a larger project, the book that I'm working on now, which is finishing another six months on the sex of the Nikhil, and that focuses a lot on the theory of the Buddha bodies and the Dharma body, and uh, it's a really fascinating topic. I think Kukai is actually engaging in discussions from India and China about the nature of the Buddha body. And although there is a standard Mahayana view that becomes orthodox, which says the, the Dharma body is without form, without color, without sound, it doesn't speak, that may be orthodox, but it's not the only view. There are many texts in the Indian and Chinese traditions that debate that view. And texts that include within the Dharma body um, a Dharma nature body and a Dharma wisdom body. And there are debates about whether the Dharma body has a wisdom aspect or not. A very important debate, and John McCaskey's book, Embodied Buddhahood, is a wonderful treatise on Indian and Tibetan debates about this issue that show very clearly that there are complex perspectives within the Buddhist tradition. And the ones that came mainstream is the Yogacara perspective that many people disagree with. 
But if he came orthodox, then he, how would they become orthodox in tradition? Somehow they gain ascendancy, but that doesn't mean there aren't other dudes. Right? I think Kukai's engaged in this for significant metaphysical and philosophical reasons. For him, interestingly, he uses the metaphysical and philosophical perspectives, which I think for him are important as a Buddhist, also to highlight the unique virtues of the Shingon tradition that got the metaphysics and philosophy right. So there's a political argument for him. And I think some scholars want to see Kukai as being primarily political and trying to champion the Shingon tradition, and therefore they will dismiss the relevance of his philosophical and metaphysical arguments. But I think just because someone is political and has an interest in trying to ha- hold sway at court and influence others in society and have connections with the emperor and get patrons, just because they have that real-world emphasis doesn't mean they can't also be seriously interested in philosophy and sociology and spirituality. I mean, we don't need to make a separation here. It's almost, excuse me, but as if, you know, we would employ a simplistic separation of church and state or reason and faith onto an ancient mindset which simply is not amenable to that kind of a, a, a dualism. That was a recent time, excuse me. My own political comment on modern scholarship. So I think he's engaged in discussions about the Buddha body. He is correctly stating that in Mahayana thought there is a wider range of perspectives on the Dharma body than the mainstream traditions, than the mainstream traditions tend to acknowledge. And so this you can read, as I said, McCransky's book, Buddha Buddha Body, and also Paul Griffith's book on being Buddha, and also my doctrinal dissertation. It's coming out of Stanford in 1994, because um, I have several chapters on that that will emerge in different forms in my book. For example, Kukai shares with some of the Indian and Tibetan tantric Buddhist scholars a model of four Buddha bodies that I mentioned before, not three, four. And it takes the Dharma body and divides it into two. The Dharma body is the Dharma nature body, uh, the, ah, the Dharma Prabhavikaya, the nature body, and the Jnanakaya, the wisdom body. And these are two dimensions of the Dharma Kaya. The Bhagavad The Dharma Kaya has the Hoshin, and it's divided into the Hishoshin. Let's see my fluffy country here. The camera's on and I'm nervous. I'm feeding. And the Hishin. Uh, The self-nature body is simply on form, color, thought, and the wisdom body. And these two are incorporated into the Dharma body, and some models of medieval Indian and Tibetan thought have four Dharma bodies. They have the Samolokaya, and the Namanakaya, and the Nisya. And Kukai is actually operating on four Buddha body theory. And this, this, their major debate that Don McCrensky's book talks about, they're fascinating theories, and this discussion is not McCrensky's book is highly technical and difficult to read. So if you're interested in this, you know, you should, I've said two and a half times, and five hundred spectators. Um, this notion of whether or not within the Dharma body there is the element of wisdom is a very important notion. In this highest Buddhist notion that is sometimes considered the equivalent of ultimate reality, ultimate truth, is there a dimension of mind? Or is it just abstract, flavorless, colorless reality out there somewhere? Does it have mind? Does it participate in our realm? Does it have some connection with our realm? Yes. The debates about this are very important debates about the nature of ultimate reality. And is ultimate reality entirely transcendent? Which this would indicate about Avikapaya. It just has its own nature, completely separate from this world. Or does it somehow mingle within our world by maintaining within the Dharma body some elements of mind and wisdom that integrate? And it says, this highest transcendent realm, how does it connect with our world? 
And this theory that it has a wisdom body is one way of bridging the gap between the dumb body and the form body. The absolute transcendent realm and our being and human realm. And this issue of how do you, how does the Buddha who got liberated come back and teach us? What's the connection between wisdom and compassion? Right? These are important theological questions in the Buddhist tradition. And these today, the Bhagavansky books illustrate, are very, very important in the textual traditions of Indian and Tibetan philosophy. They didn't seem to enter, as far as I know, much of the traditions of Nara Japan, because not all the philosophical traditions of India got to Nara, but Kukai, I think, was interested in this issue. And this notion of Dharmakaya creatures is very much reliant on this notion that within the Dharmakaya there's a wisdom dimension. There's a dimension of activity. There's a dimension of some side of humanity that makes absolute truth a little bit more intimate to us and not so distant. So is it that it can preach and that it actually manifests to us in our practice. So this is his rhetoric here. He's involved in, I think, these debates. Um, these kinds of things she wants followers in Japan and then talk about. One of the reasons is they want to traditionally and sadly portray Kukai as an absolute unique and creative genius who came up with all these ideas on his own. And if you show that he's indebted to earlier Indian and Chinese traditions of thought and he's drawing on earlier arguments, then he no longer seems so unique and creative and original. And there's a lot invested in their notion, as are, as is the case with many founders of the Japanese tradition. They're kind of studying their vacuum often. Okay. Third and almost last point. Just a couple more points here. Yes, third and last. Kukai's implied emphasis on the body as the locus of realization fits well with his concept of mandala. While it is true that he uses the broader meaning of mandala, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the broader meaning of mandala is not simply a, a, a mass, you know, painting on a wall and a scroll or building the notion of a earthen platform on which with colored sand you paint some diagram. The broader meaning of mandala is not just a piece of art that you study or meditate on, but it is the world itself as experienced by one who has been transformed through this practice. An enlightened mind sees the world in a way different from you or I, I mean, none of us are enlightened, and I wouldn't know that I'm just going to make that assumption for the sake of argument, right? In the Tantra tradition, the word mandala refers to how the world is experienced by Buddha. And the painting is simply a way of us sort of beginning to get a sense of how to see, and I mean see literally, visually, how to see things differently. In Tantra visualization practices, in, especially in Indian and Sedgwick, you use the mandala as a tool for visualizing a new world. So you begin to see other beings, not as graduate students or professors, but as, as deities. And you see their bodies as deities, you see their voices as mantras, right? right? And so the, the mantra is a transformed world. I think the Kukai's emphasis on the body as a locus of realization fits well with this broader concept of mandala, as the world transforms through religious practice. To include all aspects of body, speech, and mind of the practitioner. However, for him, I think the concept of mandala is primarily a physical or somatic one. In Buddhist practice, in, in Shingo, in the three mysteries of mantra, uh, uh, what's the word? Body, speech, mind. Mudra, mantra, mandala. And mudra is body. Right? But I actually think for him, and mandala is supposed to be mind because it's visualization and mental extension, etc. But I think mandala for him is also very, very physical and somatic for him. I think he wants to emphasize how Shingon practice allows you to experience the world of the Buddha, the mandala of the Buddha. And the experience in the mandala of the Buddha is something you do with this. You do with this. Not just with your mind, because mind can't connect 
Dat is het gebied dat iets kan kennen op het gebouw. Jij krijgt om het gebied en mijn het gebied, ik ook aan wat het gebied dat de body kan kennen, En voor de vrees, toch misschien, toch misschien doel het, misschien in dit lijf, toch misschien, ehm, dat is nog van de lucht daar, maar, Not looking out there, 
but back to your sociology of return, and I think the sociology of return might even carry some nuance of balance thought in this regard, especially in Malta, in Zonka, and a little bit in Malta. There's a lot of sense of how you're supposed to rein in your thoughts and all your concepts and come back here. Kind of not a centrifugal, but a centripetal, come back here. And Kukai knows this literature well, and I think whether intentionally or not, this notion of coming back here could have some value to Thus, as I conclude here, his rhetorical use of the term re in the Neutralum culminates in what I will playfully designate as a return, spelled R-I, a return to the body as a locus for the manifestation of ultimate reality. This return is, of course, premised on the basic Mahayana doctrine that the limits of samsara are none other than the limits of nirvana, or that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. But in Kukai's case, his emphasis on the capacity for the realization of the truth of this doctrine within our own human body, speech, and mind takes, I think, and a particularly conscious twist. So with that comment, I'll end. I apologize for being lengthy. I tend to make five comments that just add many minutes to your precious time. Entire your precious bodies. You're the wisdom of precious bodies. Well, so that's wonderful. You're the right. I suppose we can take two questions. We do. Have the opportunity at this point to pose questions to our speaker. Oh, that's good. I thought I was going to ask questions. Glad to come to me around. You can ask that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have questions on stuff that I say. You know, some about other stuff to the actual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put off the hold on. There's an awful lot to think about. Things are massive, but a lot of things going on. But um, a couple of related things that come together for me at the end. Um, mm. But Kukai, you know, in this text that is commenting on the commentary to the awakening of faith. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering that he also, perhaps, has a comment that the awakening of faith itself, or does he? Or what does he think about the religion of faith itself as opposed to this commentary? Uh-huh. And I, 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 I wonder how he thinks about this text in particular because it is emphasis on mind. Why mind? Uh, yeah. yeah. As opposed to body. Mm. Right. And, I, and I'm wondering then with his emphasis on the body, is he doing this consciously as a reaction to the last? 400 years of Chinese Buddhist history, which has focused so much on the mind, yes. on the one who was quite in and Shanghai, and of course, and Tan. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was trying to take over the And then the emphasis perhaps on speech, that you see to the pure land emphasis, emphasis in China. Yes. And then if you think that this has been a lack in these traditions, then is that why you think something is funny, or is something out of the centric, you know, teaching itself? That that. It, it's a really good question, and let me start with your first part, which was, will be very brief because I don't recall his um, citations of the guide teaching of the original thing at all. But that doesn't, the fact that I don't recall the being out there, I may have read it and forgotten why I haven't read all of this after all of this text. So um, he just sort of assumed that, like, uh, as in his commentary, oh, this is just more stuff on mine, we can't get it. 
to the body as unimportant, um, I don't think that they would go so far even as to say that the body is not the locus for enlightenment, that they would call it a But there is, within teaching overall, an emphasis on the mind's quality, and I think it's taken straight out of this text, you know, the reading of faith, and, and the Yogacara aspects of the teaching that becomes so popular in China. Yes. No, I think you're probably right. I mean, yeah, they certainly are not denigrating or denying or ignoring the body. That's interesting because I don't think. Okay, so the damn point of that being someone like Dogen, you know, that's not that the body from the body drops off. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, but if you read, you know, which I'm sure you have, I don't know if it's close to your memory, Carl's book on Dogen and sort of where he ends with it. He ends with talking about how Dogen is it's all about what Zazen is. Mm-hmm. It's a physical, ritual embodiment of the Buddha. With an almost Shingon-like paradigm. What is Shingon about? It's about imitating the Buddha with body, speech, and mind. What is Zazen about the Buddha? It's about imitating the Buddha with the body. Mm-hmm. Not with speech and mind so much. He does say drop off body mind. Of course, that was also the next to the slime and Zogan like it. I love to especially the notion that somebody, remember the story of the one of these things that I can fall asleep in meditation. You know, you know, just, just drop off on your mind. It's such a wonderful comment that someone falls asleep. And it's like, falling asleep, I would think you're totally getting into your body. <laughs> right? Like, you know, sometimes that might say, when you're, when you're asleep, you fall asleep, when you're hungry, you need to follow your body. What could be more following your body than falling asleep when you're in that meditation? So what does it mean to drop off on your mind? It's a very intriguing comment. But I think Dogen in some sense, I, one of the things that Carl got in his book on Dogen's meditation manual is that Dogen is following very much a kind of schematic model of what it is to be lived and a very um, ritually oriented lineage model that says what we are doing is following the patriarchs. And what do the patriarchs do? They Forget about what they said or what they thought. What do they do? They fast. Right? So I, I, I agree with you that Dogen is, I, I think you want to say that Dogen is using body for the you know? Yeah. And I think... Yeah, and right, right. I think the Tantric tradition of Buddhism in general does have, whether it's explicit or not, I think in some Indian traditions it is explicit, is explicit in most places explicit, a critique against the intellectual tendencies of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Just like the Zen tradition does. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, you guys are spouting off all these wonderful theories and lecturing to the kings and writing these wonderful treatises, but what about, what is enlightenment about? Is it about getting clear on things through concepts and articulating wonderful hour and ten minute speeches that people, you know, that's not about enlightenment. Answering questions cleverly, it's about snapping through, breaking through, etc., etc., etc. And, you know, that kind of antinomian identity is, I think, very similar to certain antinomian consequences. I think both of them have a strong emphasis on the body and critiquing certain over-emphasis on the mind. And I think there are clear parallels in the conversation of India. I don't know that much about China because we don't have a lot mm-hmm. in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so I think Kukai is critiquing a sort of you know, philosophical, mental, intellectual excess. Yeah, definitely. And it may to remember that Dogen was a trained on his own where Tantra was a half of his Curriculum. And although who wasn't in the conversation? Granted. But in, in understanding yoga, as you were talking about with the treatment of Kukai, 
he is also broken off from all this from everything that he was trying to point his on. And he's only studied in terms of his population in China. And I think that that obscures an awful lot of what's going on with those in thought. And anyone who studies about here has to be very well informed about hunter practice and about communist practice and about the notion about Samukai preachers. And to what extent Logan might have initiated such practices and done it himself, I I don't know. But at a theoretical level, he's clearly well versed in it and he must have known many, many people who practice. When I say Shingon, I mean Shingon in the broader sense of not because people like Anden, the later Tendai scholar, called his own tradition Shingon. Which wasn't the Harry's verb, it's an easy mantra. And so the paradigm is so circulating in his day. And I think one of Carl's arguments is to, to repeat it that, you know, that sort of Shingon esoteric paradigm is so strong for all of Han's period that you cannot read the Kamakura people like Dogen without understanding that. Yeah, and I don't want to say the two-pack part at all, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <did. laughs>